Psalm 103.13 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. And its place knows it no more, but the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Father, we just praise you and thank you this morning. Truly, you have overcome. You have bought us with your blood, brought us into your family. And Lord, we are just grateful this morning. And we ask that you would just open your word to us today, that you would encourage our hearts and remind us of your goodness and greatness and love in, in spite of the great sinfulness of man. Um, we just thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mark's going to come up. I just have two reminders as he's coming up. One is that the Shens will be meeting together at Creekside, 4 p.m. on Saturday, April 9th, um, for a stationary progressive dinner. If you have questions, uh, talk to Mary. There will be a sign-up sheet uh, available for contributions of food items. And then, Mark, are you going to say something about the Easter egg hunt? Yeah. All right. Um, so welcome to Creekside Church, and uh, it's my pleasure to bring the preaching of the word this morning. Uh, please keep our brother Steve in your prayers. He's helping us parents move back up from Arizona, and we'll be back continuing our series in Matthew next week. Um, I first want to just encourage everyone, though, that song was just so uplifting, thinking of how Jesus is lifted up and has overcome and is glorified, and we're coming up on Easter. And I just want to encourage the body of Christ here at Creekside to be on mission at this time, uh, to invite people in your sphere of influence, whatever that is, to come to our Easter egg hunt, our gospel outreach event is our Easter egg hunt on Saturday, April 16th, and then the following week on Sunday, our Easter services. Let's be on a mission together. Let's invite people to come and hear the good news of our risen Savior. And we've got some invite cards you can pick up out in the entryway. Also in the Friday Creekside News email, there was a little evite card that you can text to your neighbors and friends or whoever. It's also on our Facebook page, so if you just want to forward the Facebook page for you to do social media, uh, you can do that too. Um, also just want to give you a quick update on our Wednesday night ministries, just to, by way of encouragement that uh, we've been consistently seeing around 80 to 85 kids every night from pre-K up through high school. Uh, things are happening here on Wednesday nights, and God is moving. We've seen about 50 kids each week in our Awana group. And a handful of them have prayed to receive Christ, praise God. And one boy in particular that touches my heart, uh, Van Leon, uh, he's one of the many refugee children from Myanmar known as the Chin people. And he's one of our most energetic kids. Sometimes I kind of worry that he's going to settle down after game time for our lesson. And, but I, after doing a lesson on the Good Shepherd the other week, I was asking Van, hey man, are you one of God's sheep? And he said, yes, uh, Earlier in the year when you asked us to pray to be saved, I, I prayed and was saved. And just praise God that he's working, you know, and we could use some help for the next six weeks. We've just got six weeks left, 
And we could really use a couple more helpers. It's kind of a skeleton crew trying to manage 50 um, energetic kids. And I tell you, when it's springtime, they're energetic. So um, we could really use some extra help right now. Just talk to me afterwards if you're interested. Uh, Let's open up in prayer. Lord, thank you that you are the risen Lord, the King, the one who has overcome sin, death, and hell. And we just pray as we're heading into this Easter season and considering passages from your word in Matthew about the crucifixion and the resurrection, Lord, that you would stir our hearts that this wouldn't just be another retelling of the same old story, but Lord, you would afresh put this message in our hearts, that it would burn in our minds and hearts freshly, that we might worship you with joy in our hearts. Bless the preaching of your word now to the glory and honor of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Uh, So we're continuing through Matthew, and believe it or not, after a couple years, we're in Matthew chapter 27 today. We're, we're, we're about there. We've just got a couple months left. And today's lesson that fell to me was lessons from the tragedy of Judas, the passage every preacher runs to, right, when they're picking out a passage to preach from. But this is the one that fell to me. And I just want to start out with a pop quiz, okay, just what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the name Benedict Arnold? First word that pops into mind? Traitor. Traitor. Treason, betrayer. Okay, what's the first word that comes to mind when you hear the name Judas Iscariot? Okay, I'm kind of prepping you here in a certain direction. Okay, what are the top two or three things that come to someone else's mind when they hear your name? What do you think those might be? Hmm. What's in a name, right? Well, in Matthew in chapter 26, as we've been looking over the past month, we've seen Matthew, writing under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, contrasting different characters, right? He's talked about Mary. When you think of Mary, forevermore, Mary, who anointed the feet of Jesus with that expensive oil, will be remembered as a woman who poured out love and worship. Love and worship is what comes to mind when I think of Mary. But then you see all his disciples defecting. When Jesus is arrested, it wasn't just Judas and Peter. Um, they're, They're highlighted, but... It says that then all the disciples forsook him and fled. So it was all the disciples. And Judas and Peter are are highlighted here. When we think of the name Judas, it's forever associated with the word traitor, isn't it? When we hear the word Peter, we have kind of mixed feelings, right? We, We think of how he failed and denied Jesus, but then we also remember how he was spectacularly restored and given and entrusted with a lot of service for God. So I want to start out this sermon on Judas and his demise today with just a little background character study of who was Judas. Who was Judas, really? His name is a form of Judah, which means Jehovah leads, which indicates his parents had great hopes for him, right? And his name is in every list of the apostles. He's one of the 12, always recorded last. And every time his name is mentioned, there's some kind of notation that qualifies his name, Judas Iscariot, as being a traitor, right? That's the first thing we think of when we hear of his name. Because forevermore, there's a, there's a permanent stain on that name. I mean, you don't find yourself driving around on Judas Boulevard. Um, I did look it up on Google, so if you're going to fact check me here, there are actually four cities in the world named after Judas, two in Mozambique, one in Costa Rica, one in the Dominican Republic. There's a Judas Creek in, uh, I think it was... I think I found it in New Jersey. But other than that, people don't name cities, they don't name streets, they don't name places after Judas, right? And when you're naming your child, that's not like in the short list, that's not even in the big list of possibilities to name your child. 
Um, over the last 100 years, I saw on Google that 327 people in the U.S. over the last 100 years have named their child Judas. It's very small. Over the hundreds of millions of people that have ever been born in our country, very, very small number have picked Judas, and I'm not sure why. Uh, when we were thinking of our kids' names, you know, we didn't know the sex of our first one, or the male or female, and so we just come, let's put our list of five boy names, the five girl names together, and we'll decide at the hospital. And so, you know, uh, Judas didn't even make the long list cut. I'll just say that. When we were thinking of names, you know, they often have a mainstream meaning and then they have a spiritual connotation. We were picking names like Cademan, which means wise warrior, Jaden, seeker of the truth, Eliana, who is with the Lord, God has heard, Benjamin, son of my right hand, and Kayla, pure. Then never enter our minds to think of Judas, right? You know, it matters not just how much we live our lives but it matters how we end our life, too, when we think about Judas. You know, you might live your life as a Christian 20, 30, 50, 70 years even, Lord, Lord willing, but if we stumble at the end, that's something people are going to remember for a long time to come. You know, I think of the tragedy in 2020 when uh, world-renowned Christian apologist Ravi Zacharias passed away, and at his funeral, he was praised as... Uh, dynamic defender of the Christian faith. He was praised as someone who was a man of um, integrity. And at his funeral, Vice President Mike Pence said, and Rabbi Zacharias, God gave us the greatest Christian apologist of this century. He was the C.S. Lewis of our day. And you know, I wish when I hear that name today, I could think of him like that. But we know tragically how in the months to follow after his passing that it came to light that for years he had been engaged in a life of secret sexual sin and had used funds from his ministry to pay for that. It's very disheartening, isn't it? His name is now forever marred in this life. A person's name is his reputation, for good or for bad. And that's why the scripture says, a good name is to be more desired than great wealth. Proverbs 21.1. It's more than just a tag, an ID tag. It's a symbol, it's a legacy. And whether you're young or old, we need to protect our name and live our life well to the honor and glory of God and end our life well so that we leave a godly legacy behind so that when people think of our name after we're gone, we're not thought of as a Judas. We're thought of someone who loved the Lord God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Leave a legacy like Mary because forevermore her name is associated with love and worship. Wouldn't that be great when we pass on if that was our legacy? Well, Judas Iscariot, Iscariot's actually the region he came from. You see, all the other disciples, uh, the other 12, the 11, they all knew each other. They were, they were the insiders. They were friends, co-workers, family, fishermen together. They all knew each other. Judas was kind of the outsider. He was from a region south of Jerusalem in the area of Judea. He wasn't a known commodity to the rest of them. They didn't know his background. Um, when we were... Uh, looking for a new pastor elder here five years ago. We had a lot of interesting applicants. Um, we had even the cowboy pastor from Oklahoma apply. And I don't know, maybe some of you would have enjoyed that. I'm not sure. But um, we also had another applicant we checked up on who, whose sermon sounded so polished and so good, but when we did a background check with his prior church, we found out that he actually would plagiarize major sections of his sermons from John Piper. <laughs> And, uh, but, then, but then in the Lord's providence and sovereign guiding, 
we, uh, I just in a, in a casual conversation with my um, longtime friend, Steve, uh, or I mean, Bob Cosbo, Mar- Marshalltown Freeze pastor, who married Jesslyn and I many years ago. Um, he was saying, I was telling him about what we're looking for. We need someone who's a good leader and has experience and administrative ability and who can preach the word. And he says, you know, as I hear you talk about that. I was just talking to my best friend, Steve Smith, the other day, and he was just telling me about how uh, he was wondering what God has next for him. And he says, I think he would be perfect for you. And he put us in touch. And, and see, he was, someone, he was someone known to someone we trust, someone who knew his background and someone we could trust. And God blessed all of it from there. But Judas was an outsider. He was a complete stranger to the rest of them. But they accepted him as an insider. They trusted him so much, they made him his, their treasurer. You don't just put anybody in charge of the money box. The fishermen from Galilee put Judas in charge of the money box. And then he traveled with them. He ate with them. He performed miracles with them. He, he preached about the kingdom of God with them. He was one of the 12. And when Jesus told his disciples that one of them would betray him, no one suspected Judas. He, he, wasn't, he wasn't on the radar at all for that. Jesus knew, but no one else knew. And even on the last night in the upper room at the Last Supper, right? And he says, one of you is going to betray me. And he dismisses Judas to go do the deed. And the rest of the disciples are just like, oh, he probably sent him out to go buy something needed for the feast. Or he was going to maybe go give money to the poor. They didn't even suspect, even then, after those years together, closely working together, that, that Judas would have been the betrayer. He had everybody fooled. He did enough of the right things, said enough of the right things, had everybody convinced, but he was the traitor about to betray the master. And we pick up in our verses here in Matthew 27, verses 3 to 10 this morning. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. But the chief priests took the silver pieces and said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver... The value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Now that passage starts out, then Judas, his, his betrayer, like I said, forever labeled, forever known now as the betrayer, not just any betrayer, but his betrayer, the Lord Jesus Christ's betrayer. John MacArthur says, he is the most colossal failure in all of human history. He committed the most horrible heinous act of any individual ever. He betrayed the perfect, sinless, holy son of God for a handful of money. And we see the other apostles fail at different times in their lives. We see their moments of doubt, their moments of questioning, their moments of jealousies and their failures, but those were the kind of failures that are common to man. Judas stands out as such a great failure because You would think that anyone who saw and experienced what he saw and what he experienced and what he did would never harden his heart and turn away. But he 
The thing is, he never laid hold of the truth by faith. He was never born again. When we baptize people here, we say, are you trusting in Jesus Christ and his death alone as the payment for your sin? And then we baptize them in the, Father, in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Judas was never truly born again. And it wasn't just an impulsive moment of betrayal, like when we see Peter denying Christ, and that was a spectacular failure of his own, but Peter was sort of impulsive when he did it. Judas had been plotting and planning this for a long time. He had just been waiting for the right opportunity. You know, it just makes me think of how it's possible to be near Christ, but only superficially so. I mean, there's many people in our churches today Maybe seminars even that are one of the 12, so to speak. You know, they come to church, they hear the word, they worship together, they serve God, and they say enough of the right things to have everyone convinced that they are a believer. But like Judas, they're not born again. They're not regenerated. They don't have eternal life because they never truly put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. Jesus describes people like this in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 to 23, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a sobering that's a sobering statement from Jesus that there could be people who associate with the name of Christ and associate with God's people and do things in his name and yet in the end because they never laid hold of the truth by faith were never born again and regenerated, never truly belonged to Christ and are cast out. There's a warning for such people in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10 verses 26 to 31 and I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation. I'm preaching from New King James but this is from the New Living Translation. The author writes, Dear friends, if we deliberately continue sinning after we have received knowledge of the truth, that's Judas, there's no longer any sacrifice that will cover these sins. There is only the terrible expectation of God's judgment and the raging fire that will consume his enemies. For anyone who refused to obey the law, Moses was put to death without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Just think how much worse the punishment will be for those who have trampled on the Son of God and have treated the blood of the covenant which made us holy as if it were common and unholy and have insulted and disdained the Holy Spirit who brings God's mercy to us. There's a warning for such people who are living superficially as a Christian. And it's a sobering truth that those who do not come to Christ by faith will one day face the terrible judgment of God as Judas did. But I want to step back for a second and ponder the question, why did Judas betray Jesus? What was his motivation? What was going on in his mind and heart leading up to this terrible moment of betrayal? And I think it kind of boils down to this, that Jesus was not the kind of Messiah he expected him to be. Jesus failed his expectations. Like the other disciples, they had the glory mindset that Jesus was going to come and be the great earthly political leader and restore the kingdom to Israel. And they weren't wrong for thinking that because the Old Testament prophesied that the Messiah would do that. And they had a lot of reasons to think that Jesus was the one. 
I mean, no one taught like he did. No one performed the miracles he performed. No one raised the dead. No one um, healed people. And the crowd started following him. And Judas, like many others, would have assumed this is it. This is the one. He's rising to power. He's the Messiah. He had to be the Messiah, right? But Judas, you see, wasn't drawn to Jesus on a spiritual level. You think of some of the other disciples in this glory mindset, James and John, and they, they came up with their mother and said, hey, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in the kingdom. Judas was kind of like that too, I think. He wanted to get what he could get out of it. In fact, he helped himself to the money box, as we find out later on. But I think over time he became disillusioned because Jesus didn't rise to power as quickly as he expected him to. The Jewish leaders didn't embrace him as the Messiah like he thought they would. And then even Jesus himself started saying things like, the Son of Man is going to be arrested and crucified and rise again on the third day. And he said that at least three different times, even though they didn't always understand what he was talking about. See, they, did, they didn't think about the Messiah in the context of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, which speak of him as a suffering servant. No, they're just thinking him as the, as the mighty king of glory. And the more this went on, Judas, I think he's becoming disillusioned. And it came, it came to a breaking point in Matthew 26, as we saw. He's at the house of Simon the leper having a dinner with Lazarus and Mary and Martha. And Mary pours out the expensive oil that could have been sold for a year's worth of wages. And she just poured it out on his feet. And he said, that could have been sold in the money given to the poor. Not that he really cared about the poor. He just wanted to help himself to the money box. But Jesus' response was, let her alone. She has, what she has done, she has kept this for the day of my burial. And Judas is kind of despondent at this point because we see that immediately after this, he goes out and seeks an opportunity to betray Christ. In his mind, he had just wasted a couple years of his life following this guy who wasn't really going to be the Messiah. He's not going to be the great ruler and king he wanted him to be. And so he goes out, and for 30 pieces of silver, it's interesting, there's a, a chapter in Exodus that talks about the price of a slave and remediation. There's actually a whole chapter on oxes goring slaves and different people and the remediation for that. And if an ox were to gore your slave, the recompense for that was 30 pieces of silver. So Jesus, Judas is contracting with the Jewish leaders to betray the perfect, sinless Son of God, Jesus Christ, for the price of a slave. How tragic. You know, makes me think, too, do we sometimes have failed expectations of God and who we think he should be and what he should be doing in our lives? Do we turn away from Jesus or turn away from God or doubt God or not trust God, not have our joy in God when he doesn't fully meet our expectations, how things should go in this life? I mean, when we lose our good health, when we continuously struggle with having enough to live on? Or, or parenting, I mean, that's, that's hard too, you know, when we, our children are growing up and we're wondering, Lord, we're trying to raise them for your glory, what's, what's going on? And when ministries and church growth don't happen as quickly or as, as well as we thought they would, I mean, uh, you know, five years into this thing after uh, bringing in Steve Smith. Shouldn't we be a church of 300? We, we thought this thing would take off after that point. Well, we're just faithfully preaching the word and sowing the seed, and we're just trusting God with the result. We didn't know a pandemic would come down and slow some things, but regardless, that's still God's plan too. You see, when, even when we are faithless 
When we're tempted to doubt God and lose our joy over the circumstances in our lives, he is always faithful. He's always with us. The best life for us as Christians is not in this life. It's in the life to come. And sometimes that's hard to see from our human perspective. But from God's perspective, he is always working all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11 says. And so we can always trust him that he's always working things out to the good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. We can trust him. He is a faithful God. We see here in verses 3 to 5, and and this is kind of a dark passage. There's no sugarcoating it. But I think even through the darkness of this passage and Judas' demise, we see the light of Christ shining through it. And that's what I hope to bring out this morning. Verse 3, it says, Judas's betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful. Judas was remorseful. Peter was remorseful. Judas was remorseful. And it says, he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. And he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. See, Judas realized, once he realized that Jesus was condemned to death, and I, I kind of wonder if maybe he wasn't expecting him to be condemned to death like this, but once the finality of it set in and Jesus was condemned to death, his conscience, his guilt was working full time, just burning in his mind about what he had done. And he was miserable about it. He, was tr- he felt the guilt of it. And he even brings back the blood money to the priests. And he declared he had sinned by betraying an innocent man. And I don't know if he thought somehow he could undo his treachery or at least relieve his guilt to some degree by returning the money to him. Maybe Deuteronomy 27, 25 was on his mind, which says, Cursed is the one who takes a bribe to slay an innocent person. And he probably at this point realized he is under the curse of God for what he had done. You see, God has given mankind an inner sense of wrongness. Every man, every woman in this world has been given an inner sense of wrongness. I have been reading and uh, listening to an audio book on the rise and fall of the Third Reich, and and I have a historical tie to it in my family. And the people in the town of Dachau, Germany, knew about some of the terrible things happening in the nearby concentration camp at Dachau concentration camp. And they knew some of it, and they knew it was wrong, but yet they ignored it and lived their lives um, like it wasn't happening. And when the Allies liberated the camp, and my grandpa Gillette was liberated at that camp by the Allies, the, le- the leaders of the Allies there saw what was going on with the people in Dachau. And they saw what was going on at the camp, and they couldn't believe that those people were just ignoring the tragedies going on at the camp. And they made many of those people go help clean up the mess and bury the bodies properly so that they could, too, come to confront what their conscience had been seared against. You see, we have that sense of inner wrongness, too. Every man and woman does. And may we listen to it and be sensitive to it and not shut off our conscience to God Let it respond to God and let it lead us to God. That's what it's there for. God has given everyone a sense of wrongness, a conscience. But sometimes we shut it off and harden our hearts like Judas did to God. You see, Matthew contrasts two different kinds of sorrow over sin. You see, Peter, he denied Jesus three times and went out and wept bitterly. But then we see later on in the story that he's restored to God. 
because his tears of weeping and repent, led to a kind of repentance that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 7.10. He says, For godly sorrow produces repentance, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. See, Paul, Peter had a kind of a godly sorrow that when he was broken and guilt-ridden, it drove him to God. But Judas had the sorrow of the world that produces death. That's the worldly sorrow that lacks repentance, that lacks the results of spiritual healing and restoration to God. And you know, sometimes we feel like a failure too. I mean, it says all the disciples forsook him and fled, so like I said, it wasn't just Judas and Peter. And sometimes, don't you feel like that? That sometimes when the weight of our own sin and guilt in our hearts and we realize it and we're just kind of torn up inside about it, just like Peter and Judas here. And you know, I just, sometimes the longer you go on as a Christian, you sometimes feel like a failure, don't you? I mean, I feel it sometimes. I'm thinking maybe this isn't going exactly how I thought it should go. Maybe I'm not as wise or doing things like I thought I should. And uh, even Jessalyn was asking me a few weeks ago, you know, what do you think about everything going on in life and things happening around us and, and being a spiritual leader, elder in the church? And I said, well, I don't feel very qualified or able to do that all the time, and I'm sure my fellow elders do too, but I said, but you know, God needs some men to step up anyways in spite of their imperfections and lead his people, feed his sheep. I mean, Peter did it. We're imperfect people too. But the wonderful thing is, is that when we fall short, when the true follower of Jesus struggles or stumbles or falls, that we have somebody to go to. You see, Judas, he, he went back to the priest and he said, I've sinned, I've betrayed innocent blood. And their response is basically, what do we care? Get out of here. But when we go to Jesus with our sin, he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My burden is light. And he says, come to me in your time of need and you will find mercy and grace, it says in Hebrews 4. He's the high priest, unlike these priests, who will welcome us back with open arms and show us mercy when we come to him brokenhearted over our sin. What a wonderful God we have. Well, we see Judas now after being blown off by the priests and maybe out of frustration, maybe out of spite, Judas now throws the silver coins into the temple. And if you look at the context of the temple, he's most likely throwing it into the inner part of the temple where the priests are actually going to have to go and physically handle it and pick it up. He's like, well, if you're not going to take it back from me, I'm just going to make you have to deal with it. And what's uh, interesting is that the priests had no trouble. The irony of it is they had no trouble pulling out the 30 pieces of the silver from the treasury to contract with Judas to betray Jesus but oh now, oh now that it's blood money and it's brought back to him, oh no, we're too self-righteous now. We can't put it back into the treasury. And so it says here what they do with it. They say it's not lawful to put them back into the treasury because they're the price of blood. So you see, even the priest's reluctance to put it back into the treasury proclaims the innocence of Christ because they know he's innocent. They know it's blood money. So Judas is proclaiming his innocence because he, he says, I've sinned and betrayed innocent blood. The priests are reluctant to, to put it back. So they're in a way proclaiming the innocence of Christ. And, and the priests, they consult together, it says, and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. So they take the money and in Judas's name, they buy this field where Judas 
hangs himself, the potter's field, where the potters would go and gather clay. And then they kind of make it like a goodwill gesture to the public so that any time a stranger came through their land and, needed, and died and they needed to bury the stranger, they would bury them in this field of blood. It was known as the potter's field, but now it became known as the field of blood. Verse 8 tells us that. And you see, Matthew is writing this gospel, they, say, they think like 20 to 40 years after these events. And by that time, the public had recognized this place, even at that time, as the field of blood. You see, even, even the public came to realize over time that Jesus had been betrayed by blood money by the priests. And he was the one, um, Judas was the one who betrayed him, and so they named the place the field of blood. And Acts 1.18 gives us a little bit more detail on this part of the story, and I, I kind of have to apologize in advance. This is at least PG-13 here for just a moment. Um, well, maybe it's just PG these days. But in Acts 1.18.19, it says, Now this man, Judas, purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and following headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem so that field is called in their own language a keldama, that is, field of blood. Now just a brief apologetics moment here because some critics of the Bible will say, well, Matthew's account and Luke's account and Acts are contradicting each other, so we've got a problem with the Bible because Matthew says Judas went out and hanged himself and the priest bought the field, but Luke and Acts says that Judas fell headlong and burst open and his entrails gushed out and that it was Judas who bought the field. But you see... There's no problem when you put those accounts together because, as I understand it, Judas was even kind of a failure in the way he planned his death. He went out and hanged himself, but in some way the rope broke, the knot slipped, the branch broke, we don't know, and then he fell down and burst open on the rocks. Yeah, beautiful picture. And, uh, and then as far as the purchasing of the field goes, it, it was Judas's money and the priest bought it in Judas's name. I guess his heirs could have inherited that if they wanted to, if he had any. I don't know. So there's no apparent, there's no discrepancy here. The Bible is the inerrant word of God. And the public is uh, recognizing the place as the field of blood in Acts 2. So again, we see that Judas proclaims the innocence of Christ. I betrayed innocent blood. The priests proclaim it in their refusal to take the blood money back into the treasury. And the public even recognizes it because it's a field of blood. That's neat to see the light of Christ shining through that dark passage, isn't it? And then we have in the close of this passage, in verses 9 and 10, some fulfilled prophecy. It says, Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, another quick apologetics moment here because it says that it was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet. But if you go back and read through Jeremiah verse by verse, you're not going to find this prophecy. I mean, some have kind of tried to make it fit in a couple places, but it doesn't really fit there in Jeremiah. Where you actually find it is in Zechariah 11, verses 12 and 13. Well, we've got a problem with the Bible. You know, it says Jeremiah, but it was really in Zechariah. Is this an error in the Bible? Well, no. You've got to think of it how the Jews thought of it. They thought of their scriptures, the Old, the Old Testament scriptures, in three parts. There was the law, the writings, like started with Psalms, and then the prophets. And at the top of the scroll of the prophets was Jeremiah. 
So sometimes when they just referred to any prophet in the writings of the prophets, they would see, they would, they would refer to it as Jeremiah because he was at the top of the scroll. So they'd say, Jeremiah prophesied this. But it was, in actuality, Zechariah on that scroll that made the prophecy. So again, no problem with the Bible. It's the inerrant word of God. And what we see, though, in this prophecy is that even though Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus leading to his death, it was all part of the plan of God. Even the details of Judas' death are part of the plan of God. And we see that in fulfilled prophecy, nothing can thwart the plans of God. He is God, and his will be done, always. And what I think about, too, is that Jesus called Judas to be his disciple and showed him kindness and love throughout those years, despite knowing all along that he was going to be the one to betray him. I, I can't get past that. And then it was prophesied in Psalm 41, even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And Jesus cites that in John 13, referring to his betrayal. And in Psalm 55, it says, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it. Nor it is one who hates me who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide from him. But it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. We took sweet counsel together and walked to the house of God in the throng. See, Judas, his role as the betrayer was foreordained by God to accomplish his plan of salvation. And yet, Judas was not forced to betray Christ. He acted freely, and he's responsible for his own actions. We know that Satan had a part in it too, but... As John MacArthur says, Judas's heart was so hostile to the truth and so filled with evil that Judas became a willing instrument of Satan himself. You know, how do we reconcile Judas's betrayal with the prophecy that it would happen? And that's kind of opening a can of worms that would take us some Sundays to unpack. But suffice to say today that Judas was not driven to do what he did by Christ. Christ only showed him love and kindness and opportunities to respond to the gospel and have eternal life, and be born again. And he rejected that time and time again. He saw it in the close-up way that none of us have ever seen. And so it's unimaginable and unthinkable that he could betray Christ like this. Luke twenty-two twenty-two says, Truly the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. You see, God determined it, and yet woe to the man because he's responsible for his own evil actions. Both are true. God foreordained it, and yet Judas is responsible for his actions. It's not a contradiction. The Bible says both are true, but sometimes we in our limited human capacity and understanding of things, from our perspective, can't fully grasp the greatness of the sovereignty and plans of God. Judas heard the gospel. He had every opportunity to respond to it. But he never truly loved Christ. He never let it change him. And his greed, his pride, his selfishness, his lack of faith is what led to his betrayal of Christ. And yet somehow Christ, God, has woven all of that into his sovereign plan to bring about the salvation of man for all who believe. How wonderful and mysterious the plans of God. I just want to close this morning with a pastoral word about suicide. And I know that's not maybe the best way to close a sermon, right? But I know many of us here have been touched in some way um, by suicide, uh, someone close to us even, and, and it's, it has lasting impacts on our lives. And perhaps you have had suicidal thoughts at some point too. 
And rather than tiptoe around it, I, I just want to offer a word of pastoral encouragement. I, I looked on the CDC website about suicide, and some things I learned is that suicide is a leading cause of death in the United States, with 45,979 deaths in 2020. It's one death in every 11 minutes. The number of people who think about or attempt suicide is even higher. In 2020, an estimated 12.2 million Americans seriously thought about suicide, 3.2 million planned a suicide attempt, and 1.2 million attempted suicide. And it showed that many factors involved, some are on an individual level, like history of depression or other mental illnesses, hopelessness, substance abuse, certain health conditions, etc. Sometimes they're relationship-related, connecting to high conflicts or violence in their relationships, sense of isolation, financial work stress. And they have a PDF file you can download with their recommended prevention methods, which I think some of them are good. But if you're struggling with suicidal thoughts, um, you need to talk to someone. And talk to one of the elders here. We may not be professional counselors, but we can do our best to encourage you from the Word of God. And there would be some professional counselors we can refer you to, too. But I want to submit to you one excellent prevention method to letting the hard times, the trials, the depressions that we periodically face in life lead us down that road. Because even when God doesn't always meet our expectations, he doesn't always seem, things don't always seem to be working out like we hoped they would in life, Jesus offers us freedom from sin. He offers us a light burden, forgiveness, grace, salvation, eternal life. You see, in Christ, we have every reason to live. The Christian who truly considers what he has in Christ, I would be shocked someone who considers and understands what they have in Christ could go down that road because we have every reason to live. We have the greatest purpose and mission to live for. At Creekside Church, it's that we're leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ. What greater mission or purpose could there be than that? To live to the glory of God. In Christ, we have everything. It was about 10 years ago I was able to lead a cousin of mine to Christ, and I had no idea at the time that he was kind of going down this road. And it was on Thanksgiving night I, I talked to him about my faith and shared about God's plan of salvation. And after an hour, he, for the first time in his life, prayed to God and confessed to God in his own words that he had been disobeying his will and asked him for forgiveness and salvation. And he had hope and joy. Went on to read the Bible and attend church. And I just think, praise God. I didn't know that he was going through that. But God in his sovereignty and his plans and in his way had brought us together at that moment so that I could share the hope and joy of Christ with him so that he might be drawn out of the darkness he was in and have the greatest hope and joy anyone could ever have, which is eternal life in Jesus Christ. You know, to make that life possible, Christ gave everything. To make that kind of joy and hope possible, it was God's plan for his son to come to earth and be betrayed and be arrested and be crucified. The disciples, I'm sure, weren't thinking, let's sign up to follow a Messiah who's going to do that. <laughs> they were signing up for the kingdom. But, you know, we who are in Christ have a great and mighty Savior, and we need to remember what he did for us and keep it fresh in our minds, fresh in our hearts, and we're coming up to Easter time and thinking of the crucifixion and resurrection more than usual, perhaps, and let it, let it bring back new joy into our hearts and let it give us the greatest hope we could ever have. And we're going to take communion now, 
and the bread wafer and the juice remind us each week of the price that was paid. Ephesians 6 says that you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your bodies. What a great price that God paid to redeem us. And we praise him, we thank him for going through the betrayal, going through the arrest, the crucifixion, all of that to bring us the great joy of being God's people, having eternal life. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you and praise you this morning that you are the great God of mercy. Lord, sometimes we feel the weight of our sin and guilt like Peter and Judas. And Lord, let it, may there be a godly repentance from that sorrow, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and restoration of fellowship with you and healing in our hearts and lives that leads to the greatest joy and peace we could ever have as a relationship with you. That is the greatest hope anyone could have. And Lord, as there's people hurting around us, not just here in this church, but outside our walls. Let us be a people of God who go out on mission, leading people everywhere to a devoted relationship with Jesus Christ so that they might have that hope and joy and peace too. And I pray this to honor the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.